Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you're here on Sunday morning, the 3rd of June, 2007, you may experience a slight twinge of déjà vu during the next 20 or 25 minutes, but that's okay. And if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11? I'm not sure what page it is on the Pew Bible, so if somebody could find it and then shout out what page it is, that would be really helpful. 350, thanks Richard, 350. Uh, We as a church, I know there are lots of visitors here this morning, but we as a church are working our way right through the big story of the Bible during 2011. And last week we introduced Solomon, the third king of Israel, an amazing leader, strategic thinker, an effective organizer, a source of incredible wisdom for so many people from all walks of life. And on Sunday morning, we listened as his dad, David, whilst lying on his deathbed, encouraged him to act like a man, to show himself to be a man. And for most of his life, Solomon appeared to take that advice to heart. And then on Sunday night, we looked at one of the high moments in Solomon's life. That after overseeing a building project for seven years, he opened the new temple of the Lord. And then he watched as God's divine presence invaded the structure. It says that God Almighty came to dwell there in a dark cloud. And we reflected on how incredible and breathtaking and life-changing that must have been. And having spoken about that last Sunday, I was struck this week by the images of the current ash cloud. And I couldn't help but wonder if the cloud that revealed and concealed the glory of God was anything like that. I don't know. We also read last Sunday night Solomon's inspiring prayer of dedication as he opened the temple. And as he stood in front of the whole assembly, it says that he stretched out his hands towards heaven. And we looked at how he reflected on the fact That God is a mysterious, incomparable, faithful, uncontainable, immense, accessible, listening, forgiving God. It's an incredible prayer. And Solomon was in a good place. A great place. Mentally, physically, emotionally, and it would seem particularly spiritually. And that prayer is found in 1 Kings chapter 8. And in the next couple of chapters, 1 Kings chapter 9 and 10, Solomon and his reputation just go from strength to strength. Even to the point where the Queen of Sheba, during a state visit, is overwhelmed by him. And as you read the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings, Solomon appears so together, so grounded. His story is so upbeat and positive until you come to chapter 11 the final chapter in his story and you discover that what had started so well ends so badly not just because Solomon dies because that was inevitable but because of his spiritual condition when he passes away And therefore, the one phrase that I want us to remember and take away from this morning is this. I know it's a bit of a cliche. don't particularly like cliches, but it's an important one. It's not just how you start that matters. It's how you finish that really counts. Solomon 
started so well. So much potential, in fact, so much realized potential. And yet, 1 Kings chapter 11 is quite possibly one of the most depressing chapters in the entire Old Testament, particularly in light of the first ten. And after you've finished reading it, which we'll do in a moment, you're left with so many questions like, how did someone who appeared so sordid with God, so close to God, so in tune with God, so determined in their faith, someone so gifted by God, who did so much good for God, how did someone like that lose the plot? And have you ever asked that question? I realize that many of us know someone, whether it's a friend, family member, who once walked close to God. But today they seem distant and uninterested and apathetic and disconnected. And we wonder, what happened? Well, as we read these bleak verses, I want us to try to fathom what happened to Solomon. So, as we often do here at Windsor, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 13 initially. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sudanians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after the gods, other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 waves of royal birth and 300 concubines and his waves led him astray. And as Solomon grew old, and just pause there for a second, because is it a case that as you grow old, the fire in your belly dies down? Many of you will know that I spent quite a few years working with young people in a church context, and I saw this, and I've seen this happen time and time again. People in their teens and twenties who were sold out for God, who were passionate Christ followers, radical disciples, and yet, as they grew old, the enthusiasm the raw energy and the edge to their faith just began to corrode. And some would say, listen, that's just natural. It's to be expected. It's par for the course. But is it? Is it? Or is it something we should lament, challenge and refuse to accept as par for the course? I wonder how many of us here this morning would say that we were once far more committed to God than we are today. And although we've maybe learnt to live with it, there's something deep down within many of us that just longs to rediscover our first love and our passion for God. Let's go back to the reading. As Solomon, verse 4, As Solomon grew old, his waves turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. And on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. 
The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Grab a seat. So what actually happened? What was it that led to Solomon's spiritual freefall? And what is it that that leads to so many casualties of the faith today? Well, three things come out for me here. Disobedience. So God had been explicit with his people regarding the issue of marriage. So in verse 3. You must not intermarry with them, i.e. non-Israelites. Solomon did. Plus, back in Deuteronomy 10, when God was given specific instructions regarding the monarchy, He said, a king must not have many wives. I think we'd all agree 700 falls into the category of many. God had been as direct as he could have been. And what does Solomon do? Chooses to do his own thing. And as a consequence, and there are always consequences of our poor choices. But as a consequence, Solomon's faith suffered. And that's because nothing affects our relationship more negatively than blatant disobedience. And Solomon knew what he was doing. And yet he went ahead and did it anyway, which throws up a very obvious question and issue for us as we read history. Is there anything going on in my life? Anything going on in your life that you know, that I know is consciously I know consciously it's wrong, and yet I still choose to do it. And for those of us who are Christians, there is a very real challenge because knowing God's word, believing it, is never enough. We must follow it and apply it to our daily activities and decisions. Solomon might have been the wisest man who ever lived, but he was still prone to ignoring the very God who granted him his wisdom disobedience and the second route to spiritual free fall in Solomon's life appears to have been compromise Solomon didn't abandon his faith he didn't deny his God or at least as far as we can tell he didn't but he did begin to mix it up he began to allow other stuff and other practices to creep into his house actually into or into his life and into his very house things that were anything but helpful to his faith and the problem with compromise is that it erodes our commitment And one of Solomon's specific areas of compromise was his pursuit of other gods. And as a result, according to verse 4, it says, he wasn't fully devoted to the Lord. Compromise distorts devotion. And we all know it's clear from God's word we should love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind. God invites us to love him with our entire beings. But compromise has this insidious ability to reduce that. And it chips away at our commitment. 
and it gnaws away at our faith. And compromise is different from disobedience. Disobedience is so clinical. I know what you said, God, but I'm going to do this instead. Whereas compromise, it's more subtle, gradual. You almost drift into it. It seems less conscious. One writer talks about the creeping pace of accumulated compromise. You start to mix it just a little bit. And before you know it, it, whatever it is for you, has become part of your life. And it just then goes unchecked. And over time, you no longer feel that bad about it because your conscience has almost been desensitized by repeated permissiveness. And the result of compromise, the danger of it, is this half-hearted, lukewarm Christianity that just leaves a sour taste in someone's mouth. Solomon compromised. And the third route to spiritual freefall, although I know it overlaps with the first two, is that Solomon got distracted. Distracted by other women. See, as a man with so much power and wealth and wisdom, three very attractive qualities in any man. There was no shortage of women keen to get involved in his life, even if it meant sharing him with 699 other wives and 299 other concubines. And added to that was this distraction caused by the other gods that had gained access into his life. Other things to worship, other gods to solicit his affection, something else to take his eyes and his heart away from God. And it can happen to us. But surely you would think, and I agree, distraction is inevitable in the Christian life. There will always be people and things to tempt us unless we go and live and exist in some deserted environment. But here was the issue for Solomon. Some of the distractions were never meant to be within sight. Those other gods shouldn't have been anywhere near his house. And whenever we choose to place ourselves in situations where we risk becoming distracted, we leave ourselves incredibly vulnerable. And if what we are being distracted by is inevitable, then we need God's help to deal with it. But if the distractions are self-inflicted, if we have chosen to allow them into our lives, and if we continue to entertain them, whatever those are, you fill in the blanks. I know what they are in my life. Then the only appropriate response is surely to get rid of them. And here was a king who got distracted, who lost his focus, And so Solomon's route to spiritual freefall came from blatant disobedience, creeping compromise and daily distractions. But what I want to do is just dig a little bit deeper into the text. Because I want to look at how this actually impacted Solomon's life. And this is the critical bit. Because four times during those verses we read together, there is a negative reference to the heart. You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. You see, the problem with disobedience and compromise and distraction is that they get to and they impact the very core of our beings actually affect who we are. 
And biblically, the heart is the willing, loving, thinking center of a person. And whenever our heart begins to turn away from God, it affects our choices. It impacts our emotions. It messes with our thought life. And when your heart begins to drift, you're prone to making poor choices. You do allow other gods to compete for your affection and you do entertain inappropriate thoughts. And I speak all of this out of of my own life. This is not me speaking at or to anyone. And Solomon's heart at one time had been in a good place. And I know so many people who at one stage their heart was in a good place. But then Solomon's heart, and this phrase, I find this phrase haunting actually. Solomon's heart turned. Turned. And that can happen despite our previous experiences and adventures with God. If you look at verse 9, it says, Solomon's heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, and it's this next bit, who had appeared to him twice. You see, in chapters 3 and 9, God had actually showed up dramatically in Solomon's life. Very tangibly. Solomon didn't lack proof or evidence of God's love and power. And therefore, based on those two encounters alone, you'd think that would have cemented his long-term relationship with God, and yet it didn't. And you see, and let me say this as sensitively as possible, past experiences of God might be something to treasure, but don't rely on them for your current relationship with God. And so what should we do? How do we avoid spiritual free fall? How do we avoid our hearts turning? Can your heart turn? Let me remind you of a verse that we looked at two years ago. And this is my life verse and you know it. Above all else, guard your heart for it affects everything you do. And the natural question that flows out of that verse for me is this. What are you doing to guard your heart? What are you doing to guard your heart? Because if above all else, this is the most important thing there is, according to the writer of Proverbs. What are you doing? What am I doing to guard my heart? And if like me, and some of you know this, Back in 2001, during a time in sabbatical, when someone asked me this question very directly, I didn't have an answer. And if you don't this morning, let me encourage you to take that verse away and meditate on it during the week. Guarding your heart is a choice. And if you look at verse 11, God says to Solomon, Solomon, since this is your attitude, in other words, you've chosen this, Solomon, You've chosen this. It's your attitude. Nobody's forced you. Nobody's made you do this. It's your attitude. And the result is serious because verse 9 begins with a rather shocking phrase. It says, the Lord became angry with Solomon. And that may surprise us. But let's recognize that God's anger towards Solomon is not some irrational anger. It's not some emotional, uncontrolled outburst. This is a righteous anger totally consistent with who God is. A God who said, don't follow other gods. 
the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you. God is jealous. He wants our total worship. He wants our undying affection. And whenever we choose to replace God with other gods or we allow other gods to rival him, whenever we have a divided heart, God can't just sit back and watch. And so Solomon discovers the very painful consequences of his choices. I will most certainly tear the kingdom. And there's real strength in those words. I'll tear the kingdom from you. And I'll give it to one of your subordinates. You see, you can't play fast and loose with God. Our relationship with him, our worship of him, our affections towards him matters. Really does matter. And whenever our hearts begin to turn, God responds. And for Solomon, despite such a great start, it all ends rather pathetically. And if you scan down the rest of the chapter, you read how all these adversaries were raised up against him and people rebelled against him. Consequences accompany our choices. And so as we finish this morning, Solomon is just a key example of someone who lost his first love. See, in the early chapters, chapter 3, verse 3, it says that Solomon showed his love for God. And yet, here, as we reach the end of his life, we discover a guy whose love was directed elsewhere. And I suppose I've got to reflect on a chapter like this and ask myself, where are my affections this morning? Where is my heart? I mean, is it turned to God? Or is it turning away from him? And Solomon's 40-year reign and his life comes to an end. And there are two phrases that leave us with this abiding memory of what was an incredible king or who was an incredible king. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Do you know it can be really annoying whenever you're compared with others? And yet it can also be inspiring. So the question is, what was the difference between the second and third king of Israel? One was fully devoted to the Lord as God. The other wasn't. Now that may sound too simplistic, and yet it's the reality. David wasn't perfect. He made huge mistakes Glaring errors. He made some stupid choices and we've looked at those during this series. But this isn't about perfection. The difference is that David chose to resubmit to God. David made choices that retuned his heart towards God. And therefore he reached the place that Solomon never did of saying, God, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Solomon wasn't prepared to do that wasn't prepared to confront the sin that had crept into his life. And so having started so well, it ends so badly. And the question I just want to leave with us this morning is, how are we going to finish this race? How are we going to finish it? And to finish well, don't miss the warnings of a life that went into spiritual freefall. Consistently confront disobedience, compromise and distractions. And whatever you do, Guard your heart, or else you risk it turning. It's all a bit heavy. We're going to stand together and sing this final 
song, and then Glenn's going to come and close in prayer. But I know it's a song that Peter and Esther have chosen to sing as the first song for their wedding. Tomorrow, it's a great choice of a song to sing at a wedding. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. So this is really a prayer. And so I invite you not just to sing words, but to sing this as a prayer and ask God that he would be your vision, not be all else to me. That there would be nothing else which solicit your affection this week.